0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Follow with me now as I read uh, from Acts chapter 11, and I'll be reading verses 19 to 21. Well, actually, I'm going to read all the way down to verse 26, and I think I'll skip over and read part of chapter 13, so follow with me. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the land, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, and now if you'll turn over with me to chapter 13, where uh, the narrative gets back to the church at Antioch again, we read in verse one. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. All right, let's, let's pray together. And as we're beginning to pray, just to, I want to mention to the men in the back, it seems to me like the mic is a little bit loud. It may just be me, but... Um, It sounds a lot louder than normal, so let's pray together. Our Father, as we come into your presence today, we are so thankful for all the blessings of this day, the Lord's day, that we can pull away from the busyness of life, from many other legitimate concerns of life, and we can lay them aside today, and we can focus upon that which is most precious and dear to the hearts of those who are your true people, that is the things of Christ the things of eternity, the things of your word. We thank you also for the fellowship of the saints, the blessing of singing praises to you because you are worthy of our praise. And now as we come to your holy word this morning, we ask that you would help us to continue to worship you. And in this case, not in the sense of what we say, but what we hear, that we would listen to your word with reverence, with believing hearts, We pray that your Holy Spirit would come down upon it, upon preacher and hearer, that your word would be effectual to work powerfully in us those things that are pleasing to you. We ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. As most of you here, those of you who are members of our church know, uh, we've been prayerfully seeking to begin an endeavor uh, to see a new church planted uh, about an hour north of us, And in light of that, I had been thinking for some time that it would be a good time right now to give a brief series of messages uh, related to the subject of church planting and as we see it in the book of Acts, and particularly in the planting of the church at Antioch. And I think there's much here to be learned about this from this occasion that we have in the book of Acts, but also just a lot to learn about some of the characteristics of a healthy Christ-centered church missions-minded church that would apply to all of us. Some of you who are in the North Group, in the two or three trips that I've made up there to minister to you, you're going to recognize some of the things that I'm going to say because some of this is going to be a repeat to some of you, though it's going to, I'm going to develop this in much more detail uh, than I did when I was up there for the next several weeks. When you come to the book of Acts, it's been suggested that the narrative of the book of Acts is sandwiched between two bracketing statements that help us to capture its theme. The first is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And there we have, you remember, the resurrected Christ just before his ascension laying out his program for the advancement of the gospel. He says there, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, here is the commission given to the church, and our Lord tells us that the plan and purpose of God is for the gospel to now spread from its base in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's the first bracket or bookend of uh, the Book of Acts, and then we have, and then when we come to the last verse in the last chapter of Acts, in chapter twenty-eight, we have the other bookend, and by now. The Apostle Paul has planted churches throughout Asia Minor and Macedonia, and he's now a prisoner in Rome. He's, he's allowed to dwell, you remember, in his own rented house, receiving all who came to him. And the last verse of the book of Acts says this. Preaching, he's, he's, uh, he's there. It says he's preaching the kingdom of God, teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Or literally, the word there is unhindered, the Greek word. The last word... Of the book of Acts is the Greek word akolutos, unhindered. And really, that's what the book of Acts is about from beginning to end. It's about the gospel going forth unhindered, with unhindered, unstoppable power from Jerusalem throughout Judea into Samaria and eventually to Rome, from which it continues to go forth even today to the far reaches of the world. So in Acts... Uh, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the fulfillment of that promise that Christ gave in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And going back even further, the promise made to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And going back even further than that, the first gospel promise made in the Garden of Eden after the fall. Genesis 3.15, that there would come one from the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, Satan. The promise that God's purpose of redemption through Jesus Christ would, through the promised Messiah, would include within its scope people from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue, and it would ultimately prevail. That's what we see beginning to happen in the book of Acts as it traces out for us the advancement of of the gospel in the first century. And advance that still continues today down to our present time. Well, here at the end of chapter 11, we come to one of those very important turning points in this process, a huge step or what we might call a bridge event in the spread of the gospel. We have the record of the founding of the first Gentile church, the church at Antioch. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, I just remind you that the previous section of the book of Acts is where we have the first Gentile converts. Chapter 10 all the way to chapter 11 verse 18 is that whole story you remember about Cornelius and how God gave a vision to Peter uh, that he's to go to the home of a Gentile and he's to preach the gospel and he gave a vision to Cornelius to send for Peter to come for him. And, And Peter goes there and there's a whole crowd of Gentiles that are gathered there in the home of Cornelius and Peter preaches the gospel to them, and they are converted to Christ. And so that, that section ended in verse 18 with this epic-making declaration. Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Well, that statement then is uh, provides the fitting transition to the passage that we come to this morning and really to the rest of the book of Acts because from this point forward... The conversion of the Gentiles is going to be Luke's main theme. But again, today, we come to a tremendously important event in that process the planting of the first Gentile church. And it's it's really, I think, almost impossible to overemphasize how important and how influential this church will become. Antioch will become a mission base for the spread of the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world, it will be the sending church. For the Apostle Paul and his missionary church planting labors. And from now on, as you're reading through the book of Acts, Antioch will be the center of focus, not Jerusalem. Now, the Jerusalem church, it will continue to have great influence and authority as most of the apostles were there. But Antioch, in some ways, will become more prominent, if uh, the most prominent, or at least uh, much so. It's destined to become a strong, healthy, vibrant church with a gifted plurality of elders, a multi-ethnic church marked by prayer, preaching, and a zealous vision for missions and church planting. In fact, it will become one of the greatest missionary churches, it's not an exaggeration to say this, one of the greatest missionary churches in the entire history of Christianity. And as such, it's a church that uh, we can learn a lot from. But before we begin to look at how this church began, let me just say something about the city of Antioch itself. What was this city like where this important church is to be established? Well, the city of Antioch was located in what is now southeastern Turkey. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. If you think about Jerusalem and you go up and how... Turkey's over here on the left. Is the Mediterranean Sea. You come around the Mediterranean Sea and you have Turkey. Well, Antioch was kind of right there close, almost where that turn happens. That's where Antioch was located. It was located on the Orontes River, about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. And that river led to a port, making it possible for the city to carry on extensive trade with other regions. It was a large city. It was the third largest city in the known world at the time, behind Rome and Alexandria. It's estimated that in the first century, it had a population of about half a million. Because of its location and history, Antioch was also an unusually cosmopolitan city. There was a tremendous mix of people and cultures to be found there. The population was made up of Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, and Indians, to name a few. It was a business center. Uh, One writing about it and describing it It says, the wealth of the East flowed through Antioch on its way to Rome. The armies of Greece and Rome marched through Antioch. Antioch was sophisticated and tolerant. Yes, tolerant because all these different peoples, each with its own background, had to live and function side by side. Antioch was somewhat of the, quote, melting pot of the American ideal. Something else about Antioch, it was a morally corrupt city. Even to the pagans of the ancient world, Antioch was considered corrupt. In the suburbs of the city, there was a park or a grove of trees called the Grove of Apollo. And it was, it was notorious as a location where a, if you, you know something of, of Greek mythology where Apollo's mythical and famous pursuit of Daphne, it was reenacted night and day by the men of the city with ritual prostitutes in the grove of Apollo. It's been described as something like an outdoor brothel where people went specifically to indulge their sexual appetites. In fact, throughout the world, the quote, morals of Daphne was a euphemism for depravity. Antioch was known for debauchery, so well known for that, that not long after that period, a Roman senator made this comment. He was complaining about the moral decline of Rome uh, compared to the, back in the days of the Roman Republic. And he said this, the Orontes, an allusion to, to uh, Antioch, has flowed into the Tiber. Yet this is the city, this large cosmopolitan melting pot, famous for its moral corruption, where this great church was planted. And when I was reading about Antioch, in many ways, it, rem- it reminded me of South Florida. And, and there's a lesson for, for us right here at the outset. This should remind us that it's places like this where God does some of his greatest works. We often hear talk about the fact that in America, we're now living in a post-Christian society, a society that's becoming more and more pagan and ungodly. The influence of Christianity in our culture continues to diminish and is quickly disappearing, and this is especially true in certain parts of our country, South Florida being one of them. And we often talk about how bad things are and how difficult it is to raise children in a place like this, the temptations, the sin, the, the materialism, the sexual permissiveness and perversion, the drug abuse, the party life atmosphere. And in light of that, the temptation for us is to draw the conclusion that a vibrant, healthy, growing church could never flourish in a place like this. It's too dark. All we can hope to do is just hold on and struggle along. But, my friends, nothing uh, could be further from the truth. It was in a place very much like South Florida that God raised up the church at Antioch to be a light in the darkness, a vibrant church in a decadent city, a cosmopolitan church with a missionary zeal, a church whose countercultural commitment to Christ was all the more conspicuous because of the darkness that surrounded it. So much so that it was Antioch, we're told, where believers were first called Christians, which means Christ's ones or Christ's people. Well, I want us to take the next few weeks. I'm not going to be here next week. I'll be up in the Carolinas, but we'll pick back up when I get back. And for a few weeks, I want us to consider the events Connected to the beginning and the establishment of this church. Now, this entire passage, verses 19 to 30, can be divided up into four sections. First, in verses 19 to 21, we have the origin of the church at Antioch through these, the witnessing of these unknown evangelists. Secondly, in verses 22 to 24, we have the endorsement of the church at Antioch by the church at Jerusalem as they send Barnabas to check things out and to give oversight. Thirdly, in verses 25 to 26, we have the consolidation of the church at Antioch as Barnabas hunts down Saul of Tarsus, brings him to Antioch, where they gather the people together and teach them and establish them in sound doctrine. And then fourthly, in verses 27 to 30, and in other places in the narrative that we will look at, we have the validation of the church at Antioch as a genuine work of God validated by the spiritual fruits produced and evidenced in the church's life. So I want us to begin by considering today the origin of the church at Antioch, and that's as far as we'll get this morning. And I might add here the unplanned origin of the church at Antioch. Now, why do I say that? Because this church doesn't seem to have come into existence as the result of some deliberate plan or effort to plant a church. There was no home church. That developed a strategy, studied the demographics, and determined to target Antioch and to put into motion some kind of plan to try to start a church there. That's not how it happened. Now, sometimes it does happen that way, and certainly it's proper and it's right for churches to engage in deliberate strategies for planting a church in a a pre-selected location, but it, it doesn't always happen that way. It didn't happen that way in the planting of this church. God is not bound by our plans and strategies. And sometimes he works in ways and in places that that we may have never thought of. Ultimately, there were three factors, three major factors in the origin of this church. Let's look at them. The first was a providential dispersion. A providential dispersion. Picking up at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered, dispersed, we could say, after the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word. Luke is reminding us here of something that happened back in chapter 7 and 8. Do you remember that from your reading of the book of Acts? Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was stoned to death by an angry mob in Jerusalem. It was a terrible, sad event. And after that, we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that, quote, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So things seem pretty dark for the cause of Christ and for the church. The church in Jerusalem lost a lot of members. They were scattered abroad. Well, here in our text, Luke picks up with this again. And he tells us that some of these believers from Jerusalem were scattered even further than Samaria. Some, he says, traveled north along the coast of Phoenicia. Others took ships to Cyprus, and then others continued further north all the way to Antioch. So the thing that first brought Christians to Antioch was persecution. They weren't sent there by Jerusalem to plant a church. It was simply the circumstances of God's providence that brought them there being forced to leave Jerusalem. For whatever reasons, this is where they ended up. So we have this providential dispersion. The second factor in the origin of the church there was these unnamed witnesses. Now, we're not to, we don't know who they were. Their names aren't given to us, but we're told that these scattered Christians were preaching the word. And it says in verse 20 that some of them were preaching to Jews only reminding us that old prejudices die hard. Uh, Perhaps these, these brothers were not aware of the events surrounding the conversion of Cornelius in the previous chapter. Probably they were already long gone from Jerusalem before Peter gave his report about that to the church, and they were still operating under the old traditions and Jewish prejudices, thinking that the gospel was only for the Jews. But, verse 20 says, some of them were men from Cyprus, And Cyrene, now perhaps these these are folks who had originally traveled to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, were converted under Peter's preaching, and now they're among those who have been dispersed by this persecution. Now Cyprus was an island in the Mediterranean, Cyrene was in North Africa. So these were Jews who were from areas that were heavily influenced by Greek culture, They were perhaps more familiar with Greek and Roman ways and customs and people. Well, when they came to Antioch, they didn't limit their witnessing to Jews. Luke tells us that they took the groundbreaking step of speaking to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, there is some debate among scholars about this word Hellenist. There's a textual variant. Some texts have Hellenos, which means Greek. Some have Hellenistas, which basically means one who uses the Greek language and culture and customs. Both could refer to Greeks, but sometimes that second word is used of Grecian Jews. However, I think there's plenty of evidence here that what Luke is speaking of is that they were talking to Gentiles, they were talking to Greeks. I think the fact that Luke places this event right after the conversion of Cornelius and immediately after the statement of verse 18... Where we read, then God has also granted to Gentiles repentance to life. And then also the immediate context here, where we have this contrast that's being made between those who spoke to Jews only and also what we see later about the Gentile flavor of this church. All of this supports the understanding that this is indeed a reference to Greeks, or in other words, to Gentiles. They spoke to Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. So. There were these men from Cyprus and Cyrene who took this bold step of preaching the gospel to Gentiles in Antioch. Now, now I think it's important to point out here, I don't think there's any decisive indication that these men were actually what we might think of as ordained gospel preachers. They simply appear to have been Christians, regular Christian Laymen, we might say, who are sharing their faith with others. In fact, the word translated preaching in verse 19 is not actually a standard word for preaching in the New Testament. It's a form of the word laleo, which simply means to speak. They were speaking. They were telling the word. And then the word in verse 20 is a form of the word euangelizo, which is sometimes used in a more formal sense for what we mean by preaching, but it doesn't have to refer to that. The word simply means to bring good news to announce good tidings, to tell the gospel. Now, some of them may have been preachers in the technical sense, but I think it's very likely that at least many of them were not. They were simply Christians who had been scattered in this persecution, average members of Christ's body, who when they came to Antioch took the initiative to share their faith with others in the marketplace, the open-air laundries, perhaps. Wherever people gathered, they were telling the good news of Jesus Christ. What happened? We have a providential dispersion, unnamed witnesses, and then thirdly, divine blessing. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, the hand of the Lord is a common way the Bible refers to God's power. As they witnessed, God's power was with them, the power of the Holy Spirit accompanying their efforts to share the gospel with these Gentiles. And what was the result? Next phrase, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so there we have, very simply, the factors involved in the origin of what was soon to become the first Gentile church. Later, we're going to find that the the church in Jerusalem hears about these, these conversions. They send Barnabas up there to check things out. More are converted. Soon there's more to be done than Barnabas can do alone. So Saul of Tarsus. Later to become, the Apostle Paul is brought there. And for a whole year, these new believers are assembled together and instructed in the faith. And the end result is a vital, healthy, growing church, a Gentile church in a Gentile city and a church from which the gospel will go forth to the nations. But again, how did it happen? Three factors, providential dispersion, unnamed witnesses, and divine blessing upon their efforts to share the gospel. Now, having opened this up, what are some lessons that we can learn by way of application? And there are several that I want to underscore in the time remaining this morning. And the first one is this. Here we are reminded of the mysterious and wonderful ways of God's providence. Now, think about this. Going back to chapter 8, Stephen's murder... It was the beginning of a new wave of persecution for the church. Persecution so great, so violent, that many of the members of the church in Jerusalem were forced to flee and were scattered abroad. And something else, don't forget, who was the original ringleader of that persecution? You remember? It was Saul of Tarsus, right? So the immediate results of Stephen's death don't appear to be very good. Could this spell the end of the Christian movement? Is this the end of the church? No, what may have appeared to some to be the end was only the beginning of a new expansion. Now, think about it. It's amazing, really. This is what leads to the founding of the first Gentile church. And then, lo and behold, who is it that Barnabas brings to Antioch to become the primary teacher and consolidator of that church? It's none other than Saul of Tarsus. Paul, the very man who who initiated The persecution to begin with, but now he's been converted to Christ, he's been saved, and later it's this very church that becomes the springboard of Paul's missionary labors throughout the Mediterranean world. How true are the words of that hymn we sometimes sing? God moves in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. And here we're reminded of something that we see over and over in Scripture throughout church history Satan's best efforts to stamp out the cause of Christ and to destroy His church always backfire in His face. God is in control. And all the efforts of the enemies of Christ and His people to stop the progress of His kingdom will ultimately end up promoting it. It's always been that way. We see it over and over in the Scriptures. We see it here in the book of Acts. Read the history of the church, and this is what you'll find. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the great God that we serve. A God who is working all things after the counsel of his own will. And in doing so, so, he is working all things together for the good of his people, the glory of his name, the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. And that ought to encourage us. But not only do we have an encouraging reminder of the mysterious and wonderful ways of God's providence. Secondly, in these unnamed witnesses, we have an instructive example for every Christian to follow. Specifically, let us learn from their example that wherever we may find ourselves in God's providence, we should seek to do good. We should bring Christ with us. You may not be happy with your circumstances right now. You may not be where you would like to be or doing what you would like to be doing. But remember, it's God's providence that has put you where you are. Quit bucking it. Start asking yourself, what good can I do for Christ? Where God has me. That's what these people did. Certainly, it wasn't their first choice to have to flee from Jerusalem. But they didn't sit around and sulk about it. Wherever they went, they took Christ with them, and they sought to do good. My friend, listen, your your present calling in occupation, the place where you work, The people you come in contact with every day. The place where you live. This is where God has you by his providence. And he has you there for a reason. Take Christ with you. Look for opportunities to share your faith and to do good. There are people there your life is intended to have a positive impact on for Christ. People to warn. People to encourage. People to influence. People to point to Christ. Furthermore, most of us... Most of us probably, it's uncertain what will happen in the years to come, but probably most of us will never be scattered by persecution. But God scatters his people in other ways too. Sometimes circumstances require Christians to move to new locations. Maybe you didn't want to move. You liked where you were. Is a very sad and painful experience for you to pull up stakes and to leave that place that was so familiar, all the memories and the sentimental attachments. And maybe some of you who are living up in, up, up north uh, in that area, an uh, hour, hour and a half away from our church, uh, perhaps you, you really wanted to live closer to Emmanuel than you do. But your job situation, the cost of housing perhaps, the, the limits of your budget, other things wouldn't allow it. But whatever the circumstances, realize it is God who has scattered you to that place. And he has a purpose. Or perhaps the demands of your business require you to travel. Use your travel for missionary purposes. Sometimes we go on vacation to various places. Do you look at such travels as opportunities for the gospel? An opportunity perhaps to to visit the local church there, to try to be an encouragement to the people and the pastors on your trips. Do you pray about, do you anticipate unplanned opportunities that come to share the gospel? That person you meet at the resort, in the campground, on the airplane. Perhaps you being there, perhaps that will be the means of that person's salvation. Maybe even the beginnings of what will one day be a church. Things like that happen. Some of you could know of situations like that. We, we need to learn to think that way, brothers and sisters. We should follow the example of these early Christians who took Christ with them wherever they went and wherever they ended up in God's providence. As another has commented on this, if Joseph was sent to Egypt, that he might save his father's house alive. You also are sent where you are for the sake of some hidden ones of the Lord's chosen family. If Esther was placed in the court of a heathen king for the deliverance of her nation, so are you, my sister, called to occupy your present position for the good of the church of Christ. And then we can add, if these Christians were scattered and some of them ended up in that cosmopolitan, morally corrupt city of Antioch so that a great and vibrant church might be planted there, so you too, dear Christian, are here in South Florida for a reason. We are here to shine as lights against the backdrop of the darkness that is all around us. So we must be thinking of this. We must not only be thinking about ourselves. We must not murmur with discontentment about our circumstances. But instead, think about the cause of Christ and what he can do for his glory that you may have never thought possible. Certainly, these these folks, when when they had to flee Jerusalem... They had never had any idea what was going to happen and how God was going to use them in the planting of this church that would be such a wonderful missions-minded church that would do so much for the kingdom of God. But they took Christ with them when they went. So we have encouraging reminder of the mysterious and wonderful ways of God's providence, an instructive example for every Christian to follow. And then thirdly, we have a striking illustration of the twofold means by which God effectually calls sinners to himself. Did you see it? They spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. That's one. And the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the other. Evangelistic activity and divine power. The Word and the Spirit. And if we are to see people believing and turning to the Lord as they did both means are absolutely essential our confession of faith puts it this way in the chapter on effectual calling those whom god has predestined unto life he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit there we have the two means by which god effectually calls sinners the word and the spirit and that's what we see here see here in our text First, God draws sinners to Christ by the instrumentality of his word. They were preaching the word. They were speaking to the Hellenists, the word of God. If sinners are to be saved, we have to tell them the gospel. We must tell them about Christ. We can't expect the hand of the Lord to be with us if we're not sharing the gospel with people. Notice the order of the text. It doesn't say the hand of the Lord was with them and then they were speaking and preaching the Lord Jesus. No, they were speaking and telling forth the gospel and it was as they were doing that that the hand of the Lord was with them. And I think we get that backwards sometimes. People say God's just not blessing in these days. God's not at work like he used to be in days gone by. It doesn't seem like the hand of the Lord is with us. We aren't seeing souls saved, men raised up to preach, new churches being planted, new missionaries sent out, and mission fields opened up. We don't see that very much right now. Well, I just guess the hand of the Lord is not with us. Well, that may be so, but it could be that the hand of the Lord is not with us because we aren't doing anything, right, to advance the gospel. Are we, Manuel Baptist Church, are you, speaking to the Gentiles, telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, if we're not finding ways to do that, it shouldn't surprise us if the hand of the Lord is not with us. These people were courageous. They were taking risks for the gospel. They were speaking to people that other Christians were avoiding as beyond hope. But they didn't restrict themselves. They didn't say it's useless to attempt to plant a church up there in Antioch, that wicked, morally corrupt place. It's, it's useless to attempt the conversion of these pagans, nice religious people maybe, but not these pagan Gentiles. No, they told forth the gospel, and they shared it even with those who for a while were passed over by some of the other brethren. And as they did so, the hand of the Lord Was with them. The Lord must work, yes, but it's not the Spirit working in a vacuum. It's both the Spirit, it's by the Spirit, and by the Word that God works to bring sinners to Himself. Therefore, we need to preach it, proclaim it, tell people the message by word of mouth, by booklet, by internet links, by social media venues, by gospel conversations, by hospitality, by efforts aggressive efforts to do mission work in our own Jerusalem as well as throughout the world by aggressive endeavors to reach into areas and communities. We must be engaging in evangelistic missionary endeavors. Otherwise, the hand of the Lord will not be with us. So this is the first means. But on the other hand, it's also necessary that the hand of the Lord indeed be with us. Though we have no reason to expect the hand of the Lord to be with us, if we're not evangelizing at the same time, sharing the gospel alone is not sufficient. We need the blessing of God to rest upon our efforts. According to Scripture, the human heart is so blinded by sin and so spiritually dead and in bondage that unless the Holy Spirit comes in regenerating power, no one will ever believe. There will be no conversions regardless of how well and how much truth is communicated. This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5, when he describes there the conversion of the Thessalonians. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. How did he know their election of God? How did he know that? For, he says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Now, it did come to them in word, but he says not in word only. It came in power, in the Holy Spirit, much assurance. And how did Paul know that it came to them in that way? Well, he goes on to say that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's the same thing we see here in our text. These scattered brethren proclaim the gospel. The gospel came to these Gentiles in Antioch in word, but not in word only. The hand of the Lord was with them. And how was that evidenced? A great number believed and turned to the Lord. Perhaps one of the most beautiful illustrations of this is the record of the conversion of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Do you remember that? The Apostle Paul, in obedience to the Macedonian vision, I think I talked about this a few weeks ago, he he set out for Philippi. and Sometime after he uh, arrived there, he goes down by the riverside where certain people were gathered, and we read that he sat down and he spoke to the women who met there. He begins to share the gospel with them. And what happens? Well, while he is speaking, the Lord himself, who is the theme of the gospel, is present by the Holy Spirit. The Lord himself is active, and he's doing something that Paul himself could never do. Acts 16, 14, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, heard us speaking the gospel, whose heart the Lord opened to heed the things that were being spoken by Paul. Now, notice the order. She heard us. She heard Paul and his companions speaking the gospel. But what followed? Whose heart the Lord opened to heed these things. And the idea is she took heed to them believingly and savingly as we're told in the very next verses that she was baptized and made a public profession of faith. But she did not believingly heed the things that were spoken until first the Lord opened her heart. The Lord himself, by the mighty, secret, inward operations of his spirit, opened her heart to believe. And if he had not opened her heart... She would have never responded to the gospel in faith. And so what does this tell us? What's the lesson for us here? Well, it reminds us that not only must we be actively sharing the gospel with people and engaging in missions and evangelistic efforts, we must also be a people of prayer. The gospel must come to men in word. That means we need to preach it and proclaim it and tell the message by whatever means or uh, at our disposal. But the gospel coming to men in word only is not enough. It must come in the power, in the Holy Spirit, to the hearts of sinners, or they will never be converted. And this ought to produce in us a spirit of dependence upon God in the work of the gospel. And what, what is the most accurate barometer of our sense of dependence upon God? Well, surely it's the measure of our prayerful, prayerfulness. You agree? The realization that the word alone is not enough should drive us to our knees, praying for the influences of the Holy Spirit upon the priest's word, upon all of our efforts to teach our children and to reach the lost around us and to reach our community and to plant churches and all the rest. You know, it's really easy for us. It's very easy for us. It can sound very pious for us to say, well, you know, unless the Spirit blesses the work, All is in vain. It's easy for us to say that. But, my friend, how is that reflected in your private prayer life? How is that reflected in your family prayers? How is it reflected in your commitment to the church's prayer meetings? May God help us to never forget this balance. On the one hand, we're not to expect the hand of the Lord to be with us and to see people being saved if we're not making efforts to reach out. That should make us active. But on the other hand, our sharing of the gospel will never produce conversions if the hand of the Lord is not with us. And that should make us prayerful. It should also make us careful to make certain that we are walking with God. We're not grieving the Holy Spirit as a congregation or as individuals, right? But then finally... I don't want to break off this morning without pressing upon every one of you in closing this simple question. Have you been called with this effectual call that I've been talking about that we see here in our text? Has the word come to you? And has it come to you not in word only but in saving effect? Well, you say, how can I know whether it has or not? The simple answer to that question is this. Have you, like these gentiles in our text, believed the gospel and turned to the Lord Jesus? Have you come to understand and and to see that you are a sinner? That you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath and that you are such a sinner that you can never merit God's favor? that you can never do anything to make yourself right with God, that that you're lost and undone, that apart from Jesus Christ, you're headed to hell. Have you come to see that and to understand that, that there's only one way you can be saved? is through Christ. And have you believed the good news that Christ has come to save sinners like you? And having believed that, have you turned to him in repentance for your sins to embrace him as your Savior and your Lord? Have you done that? If you have, then rejoice at what God has done for your soul and remember to whom all the glory belongs. You would have never turned to him if the Lord himself had not first opened your heart. But if you're not converted, take heart this morning for the gospel comes to you today in this place. It comes to you in the preaching of the word. And God in the gospel sincerely invites you to come and to take of the water of life freely. But pastor, as you proclaim the gospel to me today, how can I know that the hand of the Lord is with you? In my case, making that gospel effectual. Well, there's only one way you can know, and that's by repenting and turning to the Lord in faith like the people here in our text. God has provided a savior for lost, undone, helpless sinners in bondage to the guilt and the power of sin in our lives he's provided a deliverer a savior to rescue us from our sins jesus christ took the debt of our sins upon himself the debt that we owe to the justice of god he took it upon himself and he died upon the cross as our substitute and god raised him from the dead testifying that his sacrifice was sufficient for all who in repentance and faith turned to him and cast themselves upon him believingly for mercy and salvation This is the message of the gospel. It goes out to you today. And the Lord says, come. Let him who is a thirst come. Take of the water of life freely. And Jesus said, him who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's how you know, is by coming to him. Coming to Christ. No strings attached. No conditions. Coming to him is nothing but a sinner. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. God have mercy upon me, the sinner, for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. It's so helpful, it's so clear, it's so powerful. We thank you for this portion of Scripture where we are challenged, Lord, with regard to our calling as a church, the work of evangelism and missions. We're also encouraged at your providence and how you can do great things from what seems to be uh, tragedies or even small beginnings. We've seen that even in the life of our own church over its history and over the years. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us, Lord that you would stir us up to both be active and to be prayerful Christians. Father, as we prepare now to hear the confession of faith of our brother Jeff Selendor, we pray that you would uh, give him courage and strength and help him to not be afraid as he stands before us. We pray that you would be glorified as we all observe his baptism And are reminded of what we have in Christ. That in union with him, our old man has been buried, put to death. We've been raised in newness of life. And all of our sins have been washed away. May this be a means of blessing and confirmation to all of us. Especially, we pray, that it would be the case for our brother today as he bears testimony of your work of grace in his life. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.